Welcome to the Data Lab Podcast. I'm Brian Hills, and in this episode, I talk to researcher and broadcaster Stephanie Hare. Stephanie joined us for DataFest 19, our annual festival of data innovation uh, held across Scotland, and she gave a keynote at the Data Summit. Um, Stephanie has a fascinating background in the humanities and is now focusing on technology ethics, particularly in the field of biometrics, 5G, and she's got a new book coming out in the fall uh, on technology ethics. And we cover all those top- all these topics in the podcast and a lot more. It's a fascinating discussion with Stephanie, and if you're into tech and working in tech, I definitely recommend that you uh, listen to this discussion. Enjoy. So welcome, Stephanie, to Edinburgh, Data Lab podcast, Data Fest. It's fantastic to have you here. I am very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, and thanks for joining us straight after your talk as well, being on stage on the main stage at Data Summit. Um, where I wanted to start, though, was last year. So uh, a few of us went down to COGX in London, uh, which was an amazing conference for a number of reasons. But the one thing that sticks in my mind was uh, the panel session that you were on. And you told a very compelling story to me that just kind of in my head flicked a switch uh, for a number of reasons. Um, and it was about the, your background in French history and the Vichy government and, and data. So I would butcher that story. So I wonder if you could just play that story back and we could have a little chat to start off on. Sure. Um, so I did my PhD at the London School of Economics in International History. And the topic of my thesis was about a French civil servant named Maurice Papon. And he is known best in France because he was put on trial in 1997 to 1998 for crimes against humanity for his role as a civil servant in the Second World War. So he was a young administrator, a young civil servant in the French civil service during the Vichy regime, which collaborated with the Nazi occupiers from 1940 to 1945. He also, at the end of the Second World War, went on to become France's top civil servant. He became a member of parliament, and he became a minister in the French government when his past was then discovered, and it took 16 years to bring him to trial. So it was a really big deal in France. His life became a sort of talking point for French people to ask, what does it mean to be French? What does it mean to be French and Jewish? What does it mean to be French and Muslim? And what does it mean for the French state and French values as a liberal democracy? And it's a country that has its banner of you know, liberty, equality, fraternity. To have had a civil servant like him be involved in the arrest and internment and deportation of Jews. He was involved in sending nearly 1,600 people to Auschwitz. And not only was he not put in jail for that or imprisoned or punished in any way. He was in fact promoted at the end of the Second World War and then went on to become this sort of poster boy for the French civil service and an MP and a minister. So I got really interested in what he had been doing. And his story became interesting to me from a data perspective for two reasons. One of which was, we really understood, anyone who looks at French history during the Second World War has to look at the years before it. And when you look at the way that French police became the leaders in the world, particularly in the 20s and 30s, at policing their immigrant population, they were really interested in keeping track of French Muslims because they had these territories, right, in North Africa, in the Middle East. So they had Algeria, which was part of France, 
They had Morocco and Tunisia, which were protectorates, and Syria and Lebanon. The majority of that Muslim population in France was coming from North Africa. So to keep track of them coming back and forth across the Mediterranean, the Paris police built a massive database. And one of the fields that they built, and it was a paper database, but it was effectively a database, one of the fields of that database was religion. So they noted everybody's religion. So everybody in France has to you know, register with their local police, um, citizens as well as immigrants. I've done it myself. And you, at the time, had to list not just your home address or your profession or your children and where they went to school. You also indicated this religious marker. And of course, religion could be a proxy for, for ethnicity in certain cases. This was fine in the 1920s and 30s, and French Jews and foreign Jews living in France weren't bothered by it. But what it meant was that in 1940, when the Nazis arrived, and when the Vichy regime that collaborated with them decided to start persecuting Jews, the database was already there. So when we look and wonder, why did the French police, who did most of the rounding up, how did they know what homes to go to? How did they know what schools to go to? How did they know what businesses were Jewish owned? How did they know down to the names of the people who was a Jew and who wasn't? That's because that database had already been built. Yeah, and from that harrowing story, there was two things that flipped in my mind when you, you were talking about it back then. The first thing was that it resonated with me because being a data person and running teams I talk about the dopamine effect. So you spend 80% of your time just getting the stuff together. There's no sexy stuff, it's hard data collection, and you can spend, if you're lucky, 20% analyzing the data. And if you find the golden nugget that answers your question right there, you're just, you're blinkered, and that's what you do, and you push it out. And I don't think, and myself included, really have thought about the temporal element of it either, about how could that be used down the line and be misused, and I think that's, that story is very pertinent to right now because I don't think many people in data are even thinking about that. Yeah. I, th I think the other aspect is, and uh, good to get your thoughts here, is again, we're almost optimising for what we do with data and tech. And, and your story is very relevant because it comes from humanity's perspective. And I, I don't know if you feel there's, there's, there's opportunity or there's certainly more engagement starting to happen in there, but for me, looking forward to AI and all that kind of stuff, it definitely needs to happen. Yeah, and I think people in like the STS, so science and technology studies field, would argue that they've been doing this for 30 years, and so this call to integrate humanities and social sciences with engineering and technology, um, you know, they've already been there and done that. And I think they're probably right. I think the problem is, is that for whatever reason, their wonderful treasure trove of scholarship and insights isn't getting in front of the people that it needs to get in front of, right? So it's not getting in front of decision makers in government, it's not getting in front of regulators, and it's not getting in front of business. So if you ask your average C-suite executive or board member how much of the scholarship they're reading, I would, I would be stunned if many of them are reading any of those books that are being taught on those courses. And that's a real disconnect. You know, the left hand does not know what the right hand is doing. So on the one hand, we need to do the bridging of what already exists. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. But on the other hand, there's a really interesting argument for, do we need to help our humanities students and researchers and teachers apply their work to technology directly? You know, so do our philosophers need to also be doing the philosophy of AI? 
as much as we are hearing such a demand for technologists to start studying ethics, you know, you're not going to turn an engineer into an ethicist or an ethicist into an engineer, but you can do a lot of cross-training between the two, and that opens up really exciting opportunities for higher education, even high school education, and the way that we even structure companies to pair people together with their expertise. Yeah. And we, when we were having a chat on Wednesday night, Joanna Bryson was at our table and she was talking just about that, wasn't she? Yeah. In Bath, where when you're doing your PhD or fellowship, you have to do 50-50 in the humanities and also the technology side, so you're starting to get that blend. Yeah. Um, so let's forward, fast forward to now uh, and Data Summit, and you presented with a particular compelling focus on biometrics. Um, tell us about that story. I'm really interested in biometrics, uh, which is just simply the data that can be gleaned about you from your body and your behavior. So anything from your DNA and fingerprints, to your face and your voice, how you walk, how you type, um, but even your geolocation. So, you know, given enough time being tracked of the geolocation on your phone, you can figure out your patterns and habits, you know, when you go to bed, when you wake up, where you tend to go, who you go with. And it, it's, a, it's a gateway into the power of big data, but it's biometrics that allows us to 100% or with a pretty high degree of accuracy, ensure that you are you and identify and verify you in that sea of data. And that's where you can start to do some very powerful things. On the one hand, you can establish someone's identity, verify someone's identity, which is great for busting fraud, and the more that we're having to live online, it's really important to do identity verification. But on the other hand, there are some really troubling aspects to ways that biometrics technology are being used. And the one that I focused on in our talk today was on facial recognition technology, because I think that one is so important for a number of reasons. First of all, your facial, your facial biometric can be taken without your consent. It can even be taken without your knowledge. So if you don't know where cameras are, and if you don't know that they are equipped with facial recognition technology, you're sort of merrily walking about your life with your children, um, you know, with a friend. If you're a journalist, maybe you're walking around meeting a source. If you're a psychiatrist, you might be talking to a patient. You know, a patient might be on their way to your office. You know, really sensitive data that we protect in other ways can easily be violated with facial recognition technology. But it also has a quite chilling effect on things like freedom of assembly. Are you as likely to go and protest as is your right in a democracy if you know that you're being scanned by the police? Um, and there's an argument that I confronted head on in this talk about, well, if I have nothing to hide, I have nothing to fear. And that's A, not true because of the power of big data. Everybody has something to hide. And if it isn't you, it's people in your network, it's your family, it's your friends, it's your colleagues, it's the people you go to church with. And also that misses the point entirely, which is that we have already, in liberal democracies, fought the battle to protect our privacy and our freedoms. And we only give others the right to violate that in really specific circumstances. For instance, you have to go to a judge and you have to get a warrant if you want to enter somebody's house. The police can't just come in and hang out in your living room and thumb through your family photos. So why are they able to do this digitally? Right, that sort of, that sort of metaphor, if you will, or analogy, I think is really important. But there's also the fact that facial recognition technology and the knowledge that you are being surveyed, or even the possibility that you are being surveyed, 
changes your behavior. To be observed is to be changed. These are really powerful concepts that right now are not protected in law. So you have no rights over your facial image in the United Kingdom. It can be stored in a police database without your knowledge or your consent. And if you do find out about it and you want it removed, a high court ruling in 2012 said if you're innocent or if you've been acquitted of a charge, you have the right to have your images removed. But the Home Office is still taking them. And they developed a little workaround in 2017 whereby you can apply to have those images removed. But most people aren't aware of that right. And there are a lot of instances of people applying to have the images removed and being denied. So we have to get Parliament involved. This is a matter that has to be decided by lawmakers, and we need it written down in law rather than being decided on a case-by-case basis of legal challenges, which is where we are today. So it sounds like the assertion that when the law came in last year on GDPR, this absolutely does not cover any of that, is that...? No. Uh, it's, it's, a real, um, it's a real legal limbo zone at the moment, and I think... You know, one way of solving it is legal challenges. I think that's less than ideal. I think most of the commissioners involved, the biometrics commissioner, the information commissioner, would prefer to see this settled as a matter by parliament. We need to make a decision as a country. And of course, there's also the fact that for other forms of biometrics, like fingerprints, for instance, you can take the fingerprints of children in England and Wales at school so that they can pay for lunch or borrow a book from the library or do registration. Under the Protection of Freedoms Act of 2012, the school must legally obtain the consent of the child and at least one parent. And if either one of those people, either the child or mom and dad says no, the school cannot take that child's fingerprint. That is protected in law. But Northern Irish and Scottish children are not protected under that law. So right now, Scotland is putting through a biometrics bill this year that so far does not address that gap. So Scottish children don't enjoy the same rights and protections as English and Welsh children. And Northern Ireland hasn't had a government in two years, so there's no sign of them making any movement on that either, which means that Northern Irish children also are, it's almost like we're treating children as second-class citizens, depending purely on where they live. So if I was to play that back to get it right, so my children could go to school, they could be asked for them to give their biometrics and we would have no recourse to go and ask for that information back or not be used. Legally, you are not required to give your consent and your child is not required to give his or her consent to hand over a fingerprint to their school in Scotland or Northern Ireland. Okay. And mapping it back to the start of this conversation, so this starts to get a bit dystopian and very scary, I think. Um, We don't know how that data will be used temporarily. So we are in a state of political flux in many what we anticipated or thought were stable situations and mapping it back to the very first part of this conversation, the fact that that data is recorded, we don't have any recourse to remove it if it's not used. We don't know how it might be used in the future. That's right. We're building things now. And this is where the, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear argument also falls down, I think. We're building things now in a world where I think some people feel quite relaxed about sharing their data. They don't know what it's like, for instance, to have lived in the Second World War under fascism or authoritarian regimes. And the authoritarian regime of China, which uses things like facial recognition technology quite liberally, both in the private sector and by the government, seems quite far away. 
to, I think, a lot of people in the West. But that's not true. These technologies are gradually being rolled out. They're being rolled out in places that seem really um, counterintuitive at first. So, you know, schools in the United Kingdom potentially using facial recognition technology in schools in the United States. That's been floated as a way of preventing school shootings, which is, of course, extremely dubious, but it's still being floated. There's other ways that you could use people's genes, so DNA testing, lots of people have gotten Ancestry.com to find out their genetics, or they've done like 23andMe, you know, they take the DNA swab (laughs) test to find out where mom and dad are from, the family history. Those companies have totally different rights over your data than you do. And they have totally different rights than the police would be required to do. So we've really got a massive loophole around this biometric data that's very powerful. I mean, your DNA isn't just about you today. Epigenetics is all about the phenomenon of how your DNA might change under certain environmental changes, right? So you might carry the gene that's going to make it more likely for you to have asthma, but you don't have it for the first 40 years of your life until you move to a high pollution city like London, for instance, and bam, your asthma is triggered. And most likely you will have a history of asthma in your family. That's happening more and more as air pollution is rising. So that's just an example of that. But there could be all sorts of genetic issues that you might not want people to know about. And we don't know how it's being used. And we don't know how it will be used in future. So even if your government or the companies at the moment that you use seem to be quite friendly and benign, things change. And this is, I think, again, where having a perspective as an historian can be helpful in a room full of technologists is to help widen the aperture and broaden that lens to go, wait a minute, how is this being used elsewhere? So are there countries where this is already being used where we don't perhaps like that? What in the past has already happened that we would like to avoid? And how could technology have made it even worse or better? Right. So to constantly ask oneself the counterfactuals. Um, I've heard it called like the black mirror test after that show, where you have to imagine, you have to ask yourself when you're designing anything, how could this go wrong? Not just in the ways that I'm deliberately building it, how could it be repurposed in ways that I haven't even thought of yet for better and for worse? And that, you know, that is some ninja level mind training that our technologists need to have. So I was gonna say, how do you embed that in there? Because, so what I see is, is uh, technology people uh, getting immersed in deep neural networks, great image classification capabilities, all this great research coming out. Um, they can do all these things that look fun on the internet, but then can be used for many different things. How, how do you get them to start thinking about this? Is it that we just need to get on with the regulation uh, and they have to go through that channel, or is there some other mechanism we can bake it in? I think this is going to take everybody's involvement. So on the one hand, we're seeing some quite encouraging signs with some of the universities, and you mentioned um, Dr. Joanna Bryson at the University of Bath and the program that they're doing there. But there's also some quite encouraging stuff in the United States as well, with Stanford and Harvard and MIT changing the way that they teach computer science and computer engineering to really be infused with ethics. But that's just starting. You know, so that's the next generation of technologists. So it's good, but it doesn't necessarily fix where we are now. I think I'm quite happy with the culture of peer review. That is something that I think we're, that's where we're getting this sort of creative tension. So the technologists will release something, and then people with the sort of social sciences and humanities background 
critique the hell out of it and go, wait, <laughs> you know, people, people like me could be annoying and go on stage and point stuff out. Um, but there's, you know, there's a whole, there's a multitude of fantastic researchers and minds and technologists who are on this. Then there's parliaments or Congress um, on both sides of the Atlantic. You know, any government really that is wanting to take advantage of the economic growth potential technology. You know, we're constantly sold technology as purely something for GDP. If they want to do that, it's actually in their best interest to make sure that that technology works in a way that honors their culture, honors their traditions of, of rule of law, um, of, of rights. But isn't there a risk there, I guess, in this, from the lobbying factions, lobbying those MPs, politicians, or whatever in whatever country, say, actually, no, we need to go with this? Absolutely. I mean, anyone who is taking on a tech company or a government that's using technology in questionable ways is going up against people that have funding of you know hundreds of millions of dollars at their disposal to lobby. And this is where I think things like academia, like conferences and fora, television, radio, and you know, writing books. Books are still a really powerful way to make an extended argument. You know, TED talks, like getting the message out wherever it can be, wherever it can be brought to as many different people. We are going to have to change our culture. Data is no longer something that can just be left to the nerds, right, and the geeks. Data is now currency that affects every single human being on earth. We begin as data, right? We begin as DNA and our lives multiply as data over time. And anyone who has children is going to be raising a generation whose entire lives will be datafied in a way that we who grew up earlier can barely even comprehend. So we have to get it right for the future of our kids. So, how how do we do it? So in the big tech companies, you've got the growth culture, you've got the exponential growth and all the hockey sticks that you see. Can you, well, maybe this, this doesn't sound right, but how do you, can you take some of those techniques or approaches to actually apply it onto these stories to then be able to spread that across citizens so that they get it? Because at the moment, you know, I walk into a school, they're using some tech and the first question is, well, where's my daughter's data being stored? How's it being used? And I speak to other parents and they just, that question didn't even enter their head. I mean, I'm yeah. probably in 1% of that population. So at the moment, the, I guess citizens, they just haven't got the message. So how do we quickly get that out to them mm. uh, and, and get them to start asking the questions and get involved in this and, and pushing the politicians to ask the right questions as well? Yeah, and I think that part of the answer to that is something about taking that argument of nothing to hide, nothing to fear, and flipping it right around back at technology companies and anyone who brings them in to say, all right, if you want to put tech in my kid's school, here's what I want to know. I want to know what the privacy impact assessment is of that. I want to know what companies are bidding for tender. I want to know who wins it. I want to know how much money they're making off of my kids. I want to know what happens with that data, right? There has to be a sort of due diligence the way that we do in finance all the time. Like this is not radical step. This is already being done in other industries. I think it's almost like the technology industry is sort of thought of as this domain of 
younger men in hoodies, and I think it maybe needs to grow up and become more inclusive and involve the rest of society now, right? We'll actually get much better tech. It might be a little bit slower, but it's going to be better and be more accountable. So those concepts that are so familiar in democracy of transparency, accountability, explainability, having things be challenged, you know, having your regulators actually be empowered where we, we staff them up and pay them so that really good people want to work in those fields, um, helping the media to tell the stories better. So it's also about talking to journalists and funding journalists so that they can tell those stories and get those messages out at a mass level. Because you know, one academic toiling away for years can be doing very good work. And then if they put it onto a television show or a TED talk and it goes viral and it's seen by millions of people, that's going to change more people's minds than if it's sort of read by four people at their peer-reviewed journal. Yeah, yeah. So you are really pioneering this area. I would say, based on our conversations and engagement, um, and you're doing a number of things in the coming year. So in April, you've got a Panorama Show coming out, is that right? I am one of the subject matter experts has been interviewed for a show that's going to be going out on the BBC called Panorama, most likely on April 8, about the topic of 5G, which is simply the fifth generation of telecommunications infrastructure, which is multiples faster than our current telecommunications infrastructure, which is usually 3G or 4G, if you're lucky. It's the technology that will speed everything up with all of our data in a way that makes the promise of the internet of things start to become a reality. Now that's still gonna take years, but this vision that we have of cities filled with self-driving cars and smart homes and smart factories and smart everything, smart cities even, that can't exist with our current telecommunications infrastructure, which is simply too slow. But as 5G comes online, and that's gonna be coming on in the next year or so and then rolling out, across the land, we're going to see some things that we have only dreamed were possible. So, so what do you, so I'm curious on this one, so I'm just envisaging this collision of, uh, collision of opinions. So at the moment, for me, IoT is very much in sales mode. It's people selling big pictures of the data and how it can be used for good. And no doubt there are very valuable use cases. So if you're in a conference and you have a vendor talking about this, do you raise your hand and ask them the question? The question of, is your stuff Actually, safe? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and again, I wouldn't want to depend on the vendor's answer for that. Like, absolutely ask the question because you want to get people on record. Um, and you want to also get them used to being asked the question. And that that's going to be part of competing in a capitalist market is the person with the best answer on things like accountability and transparency should win because we want it to be something we can interrogate as consumers and as citizens. We want to be able to audit technology and understand it. So absolutely we want to ask, but we also should be doing our own independent testing. And this is where the role of universities can be so important, independent engineers um, and researchers testing things and then getting it out to the public. And it can't be in the sort of anorak nerd section. It needs to be front and center on the front pages, on your top current affairs shows so that people understand the implications of that. Because right now, the Internet of Things is notorious in the world of cybersecurity for not being well protected. Those devices are usually very easy to hack. And there's also a broader piece of learning, I think, is just even helping people understand that the, the internet wasn't designed for security. 
So one of the things that I've heard that really blew my mind was it isn't simply a question of keeping your devices safe from the internet and all the nasty things that can be floating out there. It's also about keeping the internet safe from your devices. And with the proliferation of devices, thanks to the internet of things, thanks to 5G making that all happen, in the next sort of five to 10 years, we're going to see an explosion of risk surfaces that cybersecurity professionals will need to protect. Therefore, before you put that stuff in your home, before you put it in your school, in your factory, in your business, you damn well better know if it's safe or not. Yeah, there's fundamental questions that need to be answered before we go down that path. Yeah. And another thing that you're working on, you're keeping very busy in this area, is a book. Yep. Um, scheduled for fall 2019. Yep. Can you, have you got a working title and can you give us, it's obviously putting all this research and expertise yep, it has and a disseminating really, um, it, so give us an overview of, of what you're doing there. It has a really snazzy title, it's called Technology Ethics. So it does what it says on the can. Um, technology Ethics is not so much about answers, it's about a process of asking ever better questions to get ever better answers. And those questions and answer sessions that each one of us has to do will vary depending on the person asking them, the company asking them, the problem at hand. So to give some examples, the four case studies that I'm writing about in the book are biometrics, which we've just talked about, so I won't spend a lot of time there. The second one is big data and AI. And we all know some really interesting, quite known problems in the tech world about big data and artificial intelligence, but perhaps less so for the, the average person walking around. The third is cybersecurity and data protection law and regulation and how that varies around the world and how it's effectively creating a splinter net. So you might have greater data rights depending on where you live in one place than in another. And what does that mean when we sort of step back and look at Earth, what does it mean to be a human being on Earth? And you've got far greater data protections if you live in the European Union than you might in the United States or China or Russia or Peru. So, you know, we want to make tech inclusive and make it so that all human beings can use it and use it well and use it safely. That's not happening right now. So the third chapter tackles that. And the fourth one is the one that I'm probably most passionate about, actually, which is about the internet of kids and the datification of children. So it really looks at how any child that was born after 1995, really, has a much greater digital trail than any other human being in history. And that will only increase. That trend is only going to increase. And we don't really know how that affects children, and we don't know how it affects them in adulthood. A lot of this has been data generated about them without their knowledge and consent, and often really well-meaning. So if you're a parent and you were putting your kids' pictures on Facebook for the past 10 years, as so many of us did, um, or on Instagram, and you only now realize how that might be used and you've taken it off, where are those images stored? What have they been used for? what app developers had access to them and for what purpose, right? And we just don't know. Again, this question of transparency and accountability and explainability is so important for those children. And those children will become grown-ups, and they have no idea what privacy is like 
what freedom is like, what anonymity is like in the way that previous generations who are, you know, (laughs) generation X on up knows what it was like to have a childhood. So the very notion of childhood has even changed. So that I think is going to be um, in some ways the scariest one to write because it's so cutting edge, it's so new. There's some really fantastic scholars whose work I'm really excited about highlighting and bringing to attention. And I hope to end on a hopeful note, but I also hope to sound an alarm because I think, again, parents and educators and lawmakers all act with really good intention. They just don't always know what's happening behind the scenes. So this book is gonna pull the curtain away. Fantastic, looking forward to that. And I think in your presentation today as well, a lot of the room, I think it really resonated. I saw all the tweets coming through and a lot of us are working in technology for ages and we're thinking, these are fundamental questions we just haven't thought about. So all the work you're doing in here, I think is gonna catalyze that discussion and debate and I think evolution that we need to to go through. Um, So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us for DataFest. It's been great to meet you. Um, if we want to find out more about what you're doing because you're going to go on a fantastic journey in the next few months I think when you get the book out and exhausting <laughs> so, so how do we find out more about you what you're doing and keep connected um, I am on Twitter far too much so you can find me my handle is at H-A-R-E underscore brain so it's hairbrain and my website is hairbrain.co, so I'm constantly posting any articles I write or radio or television work that I do because I work across channels. It's not just in the academic journals. It's, it's to the people as fast as I can, as direct as I can. But Twitter's probably the fastest. Great. Fantastic. Well, we'll connect with you there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's been a pleasure meeting you this week, and good luck. Thank you for having me.